Long history. Sir Walter Raleigh's The Discovery of Guyana, Part 10. Lost in the Orinoco's tributaries. Hello everyone and welcome to Long History. This is the place where we take source documents from history and split them into chunks of around 10 minutes. So if you like the idea of listening to a full historic adventure in all its original detail, this is the place to be. The document we're covering at the moment is The Discovery of Guyana, written by Sir Walter Raleigh. And it's about his search for the legendary El Dorado. So far we've had a long and rather defensive introduction to this text, followed by Raleigh's initial journey across the Atlantic to Trinidad Island in the Caribbean. Then Raleigh took a quite a long digression telling us about the explorers and adventurers who tried to search for El Dorado. And only really in the last episode did he finally get underway on his own journey. And as the journey at last began proper, Raleigh seems to be overwhelmed almost instantly by the vast number of tributaries and islands that there are in the area. As this episode begins, Raleigh describes a group of people called the Tivitivas. He explains how they live in an area so vulnerable to the whims of the river and the tides. It's another digression, but following this we return to Raleigh's journey. However, there's little sense of purpose in his route. He's not sure where to go the journey slowly changes to become an increasingly urgent search to replenish their supplies. So, this is Sir Walter Raleigh's The Discovery of Guyana, Part 10, Lost in Orinoco's Tributaries. These Tivitivas are a very goodly people and very valiant, and have the most manly speech and most deliberate that ever I heard of what nation soever. In the summer, they have houses on the ground, as in other places. In the winter, they dwell upon the trees, where they build very artificial towns and villages, as it is written in the Spanish story of the West Indies that those people do in the lowlands near the Gulf of Uraba. For between May and September, the river of Orinoque riseth thirty foot upright, and then are those islands overflown twenty foot high above the level of the ground, saving some few raised grounds in the middle of them. And for this cause they are enforced to live in this manner. They never eat of anything that is set or sown, and as at home they use neither planting nor other manurans, so when they come abroad they refuse to feed of aught but of that which nature without labour bringeth forth. They use the tops of palmitos for bread, and kill deer, fish and porks for the rest of their sustenance. They also have many sorts of fruits that grow in the woods, and great variety of birds and fowls. And, if to speak of them were not tedious and vulgar, Surely we saw in those passages of very rare colours and forms not elsewhere to be found, for as much as I have either seen or read. Of these people, those that dwell upon the branches of Orinoque, called Capure and Macureo, are for the most part carpenters of canoes, for they make the most and fairest canoes, and sell them into Guyana for gold, and into Trinidad for tobacco, in the excessive taking whereof they exceed all nations and notwithstanding the moistness of the air in which they live, the hardness of their diet, and the great labours they suffer to hunt, fish, and fowl for their living, in all my life, either in the Indies or in Europe, did I never behold a more goodly or better favoured people, or a more manly. They were wont to make war upon all nations, and especially on the cannibals, so as none durst, without a good strength, trade by those rivers but of late they are at peace with their neighbours, all holding the Spaniards for a common enemy. When their commanders die, they use great lamentation. And when they think the flesh of their bodies is putrefied and fallen from their bones, then they take up the carcass again 
and hang it in the cacique's house that died, and deck his skull with feathers of all colours, and hang all his gold plates about the bones of his arms, thighs and legs. Those nations which are called Arwakas, which dwell on the south of Orinoque, of which place and nation our Indian pilot was, are dispersed in many other places, and who used to beat the bones of their lords into powder, and their wives and friends drink it all in their several sorts of drinks. After we departed from the port of the Siawani, we passed up the river with the flood and anchored the ebb, and in this sort we went onward. The third day that we entered the river, our galley came on ground, and stuck so fast as we thought that even there our discovery had ended, and that we must have left fourscore and ten of our men to have inhabited, like rooks upon trees, with those nations. Ah, but, the next morning, after we had cast out all her ballast, with tugging and hauling to and fro, we got her afloat and went on. At four days' end we fell into as goodly a river as ever I beheld, which was called the Great Amarna which ran more directly without windings and turnings than the other. But, soon after the flood of the sea left us, and, being enforced either by main strength to row against a violent current, or to return as wise as we went out, we had then no shift but to persuade the companies that it was but two or three days' work, and therefore desired them to take pains, every gentleman and others taking their turns to row, and to spell one the other at the hour's end. Every day we passed by goodly branches of rivers, some falling from the west, others from the east into Amarna. But those I leave to the description in the chart of discovery, where every one shall be named with his rising and descent. When three days more were overgone, our companies began to despair, the weather being extreme hot, the river bordered with very high trees that kept away the air, and the current against us every day stronger than the other but we ever more commanded our pilots to promise an end the next day, and used it so long as we were driven to assure them from four reaches of the river to three, and so to two, and so to the next reach. But so long we laboured that many days were spent, and we driven to draw ourselves to harder allowance, our bread even at the last and no drink at all, and our men and ourselves so wearied and scorched and doubtful withal, whether we should ever perform it or no, the heat increasing as we drew towards the line, for we were now in five degrees. The further we went on, our victual decreasing, and the air breeding great faintness, we grew weaker and weaker, when we had the most need of strength and ability, for hourly the river ran more violently than other against us, and the barge, wherries, and ship's boat of Captain Gifford and Captain Coalfield had spent all their provisions. So as we were brought into despair and discomfort, had we not persuaded all the company that it was but only one day's work more to attain the land where we should be relieved of all we wanted, and if we returned, that we were sure to starve by the way, and that the world would also laugh at us to scorn. On the banks of these rivers were diverse sorts of fruits good to eat, flowers and trees of such variety as were sufficient to make ten volumes of herbals. We relieved ourselves many times with the fruits of the country, and sometimes with fowl and fish. We saw birds of all colours, some carnation, some crimson, orange tawny, purple, watchet, 
and of all other sorts, both simple and mixed. And it was unto us a great good passing of the time to behold them. Besides the relief we found by killing some store of them, with our fowling pieces, without which, having little or no bread and less drink, but only the thick and troubled water of the river, we had been in a very hard case. Our old pilot of the Siawani, whom, as I have said before, we took to redeem Ferdinando, told us that if we would enter a branch of a river on the right hand with our barge and wherries, and leave the galley at anchor the while in the great river, he would bring us to a town of the Arwakas, where we should find store of bread, hens, fish, and of the country wine, and persuaded us that departing from the galley at noon, we might return ere night. I was very glad to hear this speech, and presently took my barge with eight musketeers, Captain Gifford's wherry with himself and four musketeers, and Captain Caulfield with his wherry and as many. And so we entered the mouth of this river, and because we were persuaded that it was so near, we took no victual with us at all. When we had rowed three hours, we marvelled we saw no sign of any dwelling, and asked the pilot where the town was. He told us a little further. After three hours more, the sun being almost set, we began to suspect that he led us the way to betray us, for he confessed that those Spaniards which fled from Trinidad, and also those that remained with Carapana, in Ameria, were joined together in some village upon that river. But when it grew towards night, and we demanded where the place was, he told us but four reaches more. When we had rowed four and four, we saw no sign, and our poor watermen, even heartbroken and tired, were ready to give up the ghost, for we had now come from the galley near forty miles. At the last we determined to hang the pilot, and if we had well known the way back again by night, he had surely gone, but our own necessities pleaded sufficiently for his safety, for it was as dark as pitch, and the river began so to narrow itself, and the trees to hang over from side to side, as we were driven with arming swords to cut a passage through those branches that covered the water. We were very desirous to find this town hoping of a feast, because we made but a short breakfast aboard the galley in the morning, and it was now eight o'clock at night, and our stomachs began to gnaw apace. But whether it was best to return or go on, we began to doubt, suspecting treason in the pilot more and more. But the poor old Indian ever assured us that it was but a little further, but this one turning and that turning. And at last, about one o'clock after midnight, we saw a light, and rowing towards it, we heard the dogs of the village. When we landed, we found few people, for the lord of that place was gone with diverse canoes above four hundred miles off, upon a journey towards the head of Orinoque, to trade for gold, and to buy women of the cannibals, who afterwards, unfortunately, passed by us as we rode at an anchor in the port of Moroquito, in the dark of the night, and yet came so near us as his canoes grated against our barges. He left one of his company at the port of Moroquito, by whom we understood that he had brought thirty young women, diverse plates of gold, and had great store of fine pieces of cotton cloth and cotton beds. In his house we had good store of bread, fish, hens, and Indian drink, and so rested that night. And in the morning, 
after we had traded with such of his people as came down, we returned towards our galley, and brought with us some quantity of bread, fish and hens. It's clear that Raleigh had little knowledge of where he was going, and was forced to trust the old man they had captured earlier. Despite many doubts, we see hints that, with no alternative, Raleigh was forced to believe the old man's tales, whether they were true or not. In the next episode, Raleigh interacts with the local people, finally finding some sources of supplies. Things begin to look promising. With beautiful lands, full of provisions, it seems that the fabled Guyana and El Dorado must be getting ever nearer. Thank you everyone for listening to this latest episode of Long History. I'd really appreciate it if you could like the episode in whatever way you can. We're well into the document now, so please don't forget to subscribe to be informed when the remaining episodes are released. But above all, thank you for listening. This was Sir Walter Raleigh's The Discovery of Guyana, Part 10, Lost in the Orinoco's Tributaries. Goodbye.